Welcome to the New Books Network. I once met a man who'd spent most of his adult life in a cult. For decades, he lived on a compound in Iraq, isolated from his family, being incessantly preached at by two charismatic leaders who cut off all other sources of external information. It sounded like he'd been brainwashed, but he did eventually manage to get out of the camp and to start thinking for himself. Others, though, stayed and remained true believers. Cults have generally been made up of quite small groups of people, but is that changing? QAnon has millions of followers espousing irrational beliefs, prompting the question, is it becoming easier to brainwash people? Well, Daniel Pick has been thinking about these and related matters for his book, Brainwashed, A New History of Thought Control. Welcome to you. Thanks very much, Owen. And the term brainwashing, it's, um, it goes back to the Korean War. It does. I mean, long before that, people have thought about possession of the mind and suggestion and influence and, you know, all sorts of ideas have been advanced about that um, in, long ago. But after the Second World War, as you say, during the Korean War, brainwashing came of age. The, the term was coined in 1950 and it really that the whole issue exploded at the end of the Korean War in 1953, uh, where uh, 21 American GIs chose to uh, live in China, having been released from captivity. And there was a kind of explosion of debate in America about whether they had been brainwashed. And this new term, brainwashing, really um, became part of the zeitgeist. Yeah, whether they'd been brainwashed or just taken a quite sort of rational decision to, to live in China where they could have a, good, uh, you know, a better life than in the US. Yeah, I mean, when I started researching this for the book, it, it turns out that each of those stories is, is different. You can't just lump them all together as the brainwashed 21 POWs. Each of them had different reasons or rationales or explanations for why they chose China in 1953. You've got thought control in your subtitle, and there's another term group think. Are they different, all those things? I think, well, actually, actually, as in your introduction, each situation is different. I mean, being held in a compound, you know, a prison uh, stripped of all access to other sources of information is different than the world of QAnon, although the term brainwashing is sometimes applied to both. But we need to think about each of these different situations and contexts. And, and groupthink is interesting because it was another post-war word that emerged, um, this time in 1952, to describe a condition where people start thinking like everyone else in, in the group in a more subtle way, not that they've been directly kind of coerced and manipulated, but there's a kind of um, process of synchronization of people's thinking that can happen. And what I was interested in in the book was how this language about the mind really emerged after 1945, to describe the spectrum between total takeover of the mind, complete thought control, the kind of fear of somebody else or some agency that could completely possess your mind and order you about, as opposed to the more subtle kinds of influence, uh, perhaps groupthink, um, suggestion, persuasion that we're all familiar with in, in a modern society. And, and affected by, I mean, it is so, it's always striking to me how many people follow the religion of their parents. Well, we're all influenced, aren't we, by our upbringing, by family, by uh, culture, by society. So there's, again, that's part of, in a way, the problem of, of trying to isolate certain phenomena that we, that we call 
brainwashing or mind control and to differentiate that from more ordinary kinds of education and persuasion and influence that, that, that is part of growing up or just living in any society. And I think that's what a, a lot of these thinkers post-war who addressed the question of brainwashing were trying to sort out, which is what is the difference between more ordinary experiences where we are subjected to all sorts of different influences that shape our thinking? And how does one differentiate that from these more extreme forms of control, uh, where we don't, where we lose a kind of agency or a capacity to choose for ourselves at all? Yeah, I mean, I guess one difference would be, is it top down? You know, is, is, there, a, is there a manipulative leader, or I guess system that is trying to take over your mind? Or, or is it, you know, a consensual groups think a sort of everyone in a corporation beginning to rather think the same way, for example? Quite. And I mean, in, in, in the present day, where we're all influenced also by peer pressure, I mean, including online, that people's relationship to the internet is not just necessarily of a vertical authority of a big brother, a kind of Orwellian, total controlling figure, uh, or of a state, but of something much more to do with crowds and groups and social pressures and, you know, all all that kind of thing. So there's the sort of horizontal pressures and then there's the vertical authority and they're different. And I think, again, what was fascinating to me in in exploring these themes for the book was the the attempts to think about those different kinds of pressure. So there's the, the kind of story that we're familiar with from George Orwell above all in 1984, of a kind of terrifying totalitarian state where free thinking is absolutely not allowed and you, and you, you are coerced absolutely to, to fit in. And, and in a way, there's no scope for free thinking. And as compared with the more sort of subtle kinds of bargains and negotiations we make or accommodations we make to power and authority in a a relatively free society. I mean, there were claims post-war that you could just divide the world up into the so-called free world, and on the other hand, the totalitarian world. And of course, those were important distinctions. And there was a difference between living in the US in the 1950s compared with in China or uh, or Soviet uh, Russia. But what a lot of these commentators and filmmakers too were interested in then was t- turning the mirror back onto the Western world and the world of capitalism and liberal democracy to think uh, about this and to ask the question, how free are we to think for ourselves in, in, in our societies too? Yeah, it's a very good question. Have you got an answer to it? Well, I think that I don't have some some sort of like you know here here's here's a simple explanation or uh, differentiation to make, but I, I do want to hold to the distinction between liberal democracy and fascism and totalitarianism. I think those were you know important, and it, of course it's very much more difficult to think for yourself, or sometimes impossible in conditions of total unfreedom, such as you might have seen you know in in uh, a society like Mao's China at at the sort of height of repression or Stalin's Russia or indeed Hitler's Germany. So those distinctions that emerge and the political philosophy around totalitarianism was important and is still valuable. But I think that we do also need to ask searching questions about freedom, freedom to think. Now, the ideal of the autonomous person who can make decisions and to cast a sceptical look at, at the claim to total freedom in the West that were part of this whole kind of Cold War period and still are around the sort of these ideals of of freedom and to look at the different forces in society, including, of course, advertising that was, again, part of this 1950s literature on brainwashing was to look at Western advertising and how it works and how it persuades people often in 
powerful emotional or un- unconscious ways and to look at to look at all of that but i think that i think these questions are both historically and politically interesting of course about how one understands freedom and struggles for more freedom of mind they're also psychologically in- interesting and important too because i think we're all um, struggling in a way to to to, to sort of uh, address these problems and uh, and sometimes uh, are worried that we're not actually thinking for ourselves and that can take on of course paranoid forms as well there was there was an important literature in psychoanalysis in the 20th century looking at people who in more delusional ways or even psychotic ways believe they're completely at the mercy of some machine outside themselves that is controlling their their every thought so there can be in some cases a delusion about brainwashing as well as there can also be of course in a much more sane and ordinary way a, a, a need to address brainwashing so it depends how one approaches it you can be over concerned that you're not thinking for yourself sort of as it were delusionally believing someone else is pulling your strings entirely that or that there's some hidden conspiracy governing the world in kind of some of the the more sort of rabid conspiracy theories but there can also be a complacency at the other end of the spectrum in assuming that when you're making decisions whether it's to purchase some object or whether it's to vote a, a particular way or to fall in line with a particular ideology that you are thinking for yourself so this is all part of the the kind of conundrum that that was raised by all the movies about brainwashing and and theories that emerged in that post war period and that still resonates i think in our very different 21st century world no it very much resonates and what you're saying just raises so many questions let me just pick up on one of them now the advertising because the reason that's interesting you sort of almost said it is is yeah, it's as if the advertiser are using tricks that are not apparent to trick you into thinking something, isn't it? So that they've got some access to secrets about how the brain works and can use those secrets to control you. Yes, and, and these days there are companies out there claiming to be harnessing the latest sort of advances in neuroscience to whisper to your brain directly. And so there are all sorts of you know pitches made now about how uh, advertising has been revolutionised through the neurosciences as well as through IT. But this, I mean, a, a, a great landmark of this debate, one that I explore at some length in the book, is the book by Vance Packard, an American writer and journalist uh, in 1957 called The Hidden Persuaders, that was an attempt to think about the psychology of advertising and the ways in which it can affect people's unconscious thinking, anxieties, desires, and so on. And Packard was sort of arguing that psychology had been uh, was exploited not just by you know totalitarian regimes, but but also in the West by corporate agencies, by Madison Avenue to manipulate people, so that people's w- ways of purchasing and consuming, you know, as well as voting, were were manipulated in ways they had no idea were going on. And he tried in the in this book, which became a great kind of bestseller of that time, but to try to analyze the the, the nature of the techniques. And one of his central figures that he you know, sort of bet noir of his argument was a man called Dichter, a psychologist who had emigrated to the US and who came with a sort of central European uh, gravitas about him called this man Dichter, who claimed to be able to um, explore the unconscious and to to really help his customers, his clients, to craft their adverts in ways that that, that would subliminally affect people or at least 
powerfully emotionally affect, affect people and that this was the kind of cutting edge of, of advertising in the late 1950s. And Packard was sort of appalled at this and thought it was extremely dangerous and raised questions about not just about consumer culture, but about liberal democracy and the dangers of, of mind manipulation. I mean, a lot of this, both neuroscience literature, behavioral economics literature, is a critique of some of the naive assumptions of classical economic theory that assumes um, this sort of imaginary figure called homo economicus, this sort of rational calculating consumer who who has um, perfect information in a marketplace and makes decisions based on price and value and is out there in a kind of market as a free agent autonomously choosing. So a lot of this more recent literature is saying it's not like that at all, which is in a way is true. It's not like that at all. And part of that literature is then critical, like Packard or the heirs to Packard, which, is, which are sort of exposés and warnings about our vulnerability to manipulation online, you know, with all the kinds of techniques that are there to, um, to nudge us or to clickbait, all the sort of things, or the crafted adverts that appeal to our particular, that can be very bespoke nowadays. But some of that material is also being, as I I say, promoted as kind of a new kind of science of advertising that would that would harness all these methodologies in in new ways to manipulate us. One aspect of this is that when you look on Twitter, you see people with very strong opinions and they seem to think they they, they should be listened to because they're, you know, they're very much their opinions and therefore worth listening to. But they're often very predictable you know, by someone's socioeconomic background, by the kind of job they have or whatever it is. And it it, it often seems to me there's a paradox there between the predictability of people's views and the sense in which they cling on to them as an expression of their individuality. Yes, and and it's it's probably a mistake in in thinking about this to to have just a kind of Orwellian or or kind of you know melodramatic version of top down authority or just that people are like sheep somehow led along or pied pipers that there's something much more complex that goes on. Of we also you know it's not just that we're recipients and sponges for information. We also look for the things that you know that there's a more dialectical process where we're also engaged in active ways in seeking out certain kinds of information, not just being on the receiving end. And I think, again, what interested me in the book were alongside these more terrifying depictions of total control in these conditions of total unfreedom, were the explorations of of the kinds of uh, interaction or the chemistry between a, a, a persuasive voice, like you're saying, these very loud, now of course on social media, but these strident, often you know, assertive or sometimes clamorous voices telling us what to think or how reality is, and our, and our, our, our own agency and our own sometimes ability to refashion those messages to suit our own purposes. So it's not just a one-way street. And of course, people you know, who are on, online are also maybe very attentive to what a group wants in crafting their messages. So even with QAnon, one shouldn't, I think, just treat all the, the, the followers of such a movement as some homogenous block, all thinking exactly the same or all equally manipulated or befuddled or consumed by this. There may be many reasons why people join, join in or listen or are persuaded by narratives or are, are curious it doesn't, I'm not suggesting we should not be extremely concerned about, about QAnon and conspiracy theories and, and the kinds of manipulations that go on online and off, but that we might need to think in more complex ways about 
what's going on, at least have questions before we just assume that everybody is operating alike. Right. So that's interesting, because the, the more you get into that, the more you're saying individuals do matter, they do have their own opinions, and they are not all subject to the same brainwashing influences, right? Well, they may be subject to similar influences that we can all be on the receiving end of, you know, of certain messages. But of course, how we then receive them and what we then do with them and, and, and fashion out from that our own conclusions may vary enormously. So even if you take the storming of the capital, you know, and the influence of QAnon, I don't think one should assume in advance that every person in that crowd has exactly the same drives and motives and agenda. They may all be swept along, but it would be interesting, of course, to, to drill down and explore in individual cases what leads people to be there or to allow themselves to, to, to participate. And I think there is a certain amount of study of that, you know, where there are common elements of, of co- common patterns, but also differences that each story is worth telling in its own right. As, as in a way we were saying or, or discussing earlier with the 21 American POWs who went to China, having been held in captivity during the Korean War, when you actually go into each of their stories about why they went, um, as well as actually in, in many of those cases, why they changed their minds later on and then went back to the West, um, disillusioned with China, each story is worth telling. And, you know, uh, in some cases, the reasons for leaving, choosing to not go back to the US were to do with race and racism. There were African-American soldiers who felt they had every reason to be cautious about going back and who could see an opportunity in in staying uh, elsewhere um and there were there were each i didn't look at every single one of the 21 stories but i looked at some of them and i think what that shows is that is that each case is is you know is is a, a story in its own right so does that mean that the subject of your book brainwashing doesn't really exist because however hard an advertiser or a political leader or whoever might try there are so many individual factors involved in reacting to that attempt that it's not really possible to talk about brainwashing of a group. Well, I, I try in a way, I'm on a sort of, in a way on, on the book, there's a kind of tightrope to walk here because I think it would be wrong to dismiss brainwashing as just a mythology or as, I mean, the, the term was very loaded in that period. It was It was freighted with all sorts of assumptions from the Cold War about us and them about freedom and totalitarianism. So we need to be cautious and to also look at how the term can migrate, you know, from more obviously coercive situations into much more questionable situations where someone says, I was brainwashed. And one's thinking, no, you were just influenced or you you chose to do that. So the term, you know, begs many questions, but I don't want to dismiss the term. And I do think there are conditions in which People can be broken down and their minds attacked and destroyed. And I, in the book, I explore those extreme situations, you know, and the horrors of what can be done to people's bodies and minds in captivities or closed systems and, and so on. But I also, so, so it's partly to recognise this, not just to dismiss this as somehow hot air, whilst also being alert to the simplifications and distortions that can arise, but just by the assumption of, of, of the term. But I think that the, the, the kind of most um, illuminating and thoughtful post-war commentators who addressed this, who I in some ways pay homage to in the book, like Robert J. Lifton, who is still around in his 90s, uh, who's an a, a important a psychiatrist, writer on brainwashing. He wants to hold on to the term, but also to be cautious about its misuse. And one of the things he helpfully describes in his 1961 book which was on brainwashing and China and thought 
thought reform, as he, he called it, were trying to actually identify the conditions that were more or less conducive to thinking or more or less hostile to thinking. So if you can put people in a closed system, if you have control over their life and death, if you can create a sacred language and cut off all opportunities of access to other sources of information, traumatize people, have purification rituals. I mean, there are a whole kind of range of methods that you could uh, think about structurally that may make it much easier to damage or destroy people's capacities to think or even feel things. I mean, there's also what he called psychic numbing that can occur in certain situations. So I think that's all valuable. And we need to hold on. I think brainwashing is a useful term, even as it's also a historically very loaded and complicated and suspect term. There's another factor which is which is interesting in this in, in, in terms of having a conducive a situation conducive to brainwashing. Uh, I do a lot of work on Pakistan and came across these suicide bomb factories where people were being persuaded to go and blow themselves up. And one of the mullahs in charge of one of those suicide bomb factories said that he could get a 16-year-old or even a 15-year-old to do it in six weeks. But an 18-year-old, it took much longer because he, he didn't really say why, but I think it's... And, and the Pakistani police did some work on this and they thought it was because the, the 18-year-old had just more of a personality and, and was able to basically think for himself more. And, and again, Owen, I, mean, I, I, I take that point and I think one's, you know, one has every reason to be worried about whether it's suicide bombing, whether it's child soldiers drilled. You know, we, we saw those terrifying pictures some time ago with the Islamic State um, and the training of children, or one thinks of the exploitation um, and traumatization of children in the Lord's Resistance Army in, in Africa and what was done to them and the horrors that they were made to perpetrate as part of their initiation into such movements. And, and, and when you're saying, you know, that, that the younger the, the mind, in a way, the more vulnerable, it's, again, that's part, I think, of a venerable tradition of thinking about childhood and adolescence and our vulnerability and our particular vulnerability at times in our life to manipulation or coercive influence, um, you know, including of the terrifying kinds you just described. Yeah, I'd be, I'd be interested in your thoughts on another aspect of of this, which is when you go to those de-radicalization centers, which are now, you know, quite a few of them through the Middle East, Saudi Arabia, Yemen, Pakistan, these places all have these programs to de-radicalize violent jihadis. And having visited quite a few of those, it seemed to me it had been quite easy to persuade these people to go onto jihad. And it was quite easy to persuade them to stop. You know, it was just quite, people were quite biddable. I mean, we ran at, at Birkbeck. I've just left Birkbeck, but I used to teach at Birkbeck. And I ran for quite some years a welcome-funded project, which we called Hidden Persuaders, um, with a sort of nod to Vance Packard. But it was about the history of brainwashing. It was funded by the Wellcome Trust. And if your listeners are interested, there's a free website called Hidden Persuaders at Birkbeck. People can look at the material and films there. But we, we did have some workshops with people who specialise in so-called de-radicalisation. But to think about the different approaches there are, you know, whether it's denazification and neo-Nazism and helping people out of that, or as you say, in relation to various forms of Islamic extremism or terrorism of different kinds, of thinking about the sort of psychology that the so-called de-radicalizers are assuming operates, of how do you sort of help someone? And again, in the book, I talk about this a bit, that there's, again, a history 
of attempts to free people from brainwashing or cults, but also from Nazism. And th- that term denazification came up in you know um, in the 1940s, and there were whole sort of programs the Allies ran in occupied Germany to try to denazify people using psychology and psychiatry and psychoanalysis and anthropology and so on, but to think, well, what are the best ways to help people come to terms with, as it were, their delusional or illusory beliefs in the past and to be able to think more freely and in more tolerant and pluralistic ways. And that idea of re-education, which to, to use another kind of buzz phrase of that time, which was sort of originally associated with liberalism, you know, with the idea of, of, of re-educating forth in, on behalf of liberal democratic freedom post-war, also became a kind of term in Maoist China to re-educate the masses, the peasantry towards Maoism. So the, 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 the people who had the original idea that it was about liberal democracy were then horrified that the, 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 this terminology was acquired, was sort of possessed you know, by the communist enemy in, in the Cold War. So all these terms are, are very complicated, but I think radicalization has become perhaps a, a new term, almost a euphemism for brainwashing or maybe de-radicalization for de-brainwashing or, you know, uh, uh, freeing someone from brainwashing. And there's a, it's a moot point, isn't it, how much coercive techniques are used in order to free someone from a previous regime of thought control. So sometimes with cults, there have been approaches that are a kind of bullying, controlling, where someone is literally held in captivity on the grounds that that's the only way to free them from the previous state of captivity. And I think others would question that and think there might be more subtle and um, uh, thoughtful ways to do it than a kind of counter-bullying in the face of the original bullying. But do, do the scholars you're citing think, you know, agree with my observation from what I saw, very unscientific, that that it is that de-radicalisation is not that hard? One would have to look into that more in in particular cases. I'd be wary of of generalizations um, about, you know, the ease with which you can totally possess someone in the first place or then entirely free someone afterwards. I'm sure there are important ways people can rethink and change. And even in more ordinary ways than the extremes you're describing of someone who's on a path to, you know, a suicide bombing or, or to some kind of atrocious act and how quickly or thoroughly they can be as it were, re, refashioned or help, help to th- rethink. There are all, all many more ordinary ways, aren't there, in which people come to psychotherapy or psychoanalysis seeking psychic change of something which feels like some inexorable pattern in their life or curse or force, drive, as Freud would have said, but sort of, you know, where they, they, they hope that through a process of therapy, something will change. And I think Freud at the beginning sometimes thought these the process could be very quick, that people could be cured of all sorts of ailments, hysterical symptoms, you know, all kinds of neurotic processes very, very quickly. And of course, there are therapeutic approaches now that aim at a very quick fix. I think in psychoanalysis, it came to be thought that actually it took more time, was more partial, more complicated. Often there were moves, you know, ebb and flow. It wasn't sort of simply eureka, you're free, or, or you're either in chains or you're free psychically but something more of a kind of struggle between these different forces in the mind. I, th- I think it was in one of the Future Of interviews, actually, but it was certainly in her book, even if we didn't get it into the interview, What was a very interesting observation on QAnon supporters and in that if you want to dissuade them of their 
irrational QAnon beliefs, the way to, you know, which are basically that there's a conspiracy by the deep state, the way to do it is to just mention to them the possibility that the, the, the people who are leading the QAnon movement and feeding them all this information are themselves badly motivated and trying to manipulate them. And apparently that argument is quite successful. Well, I, I could imagine in some cases that that would be a, a you know a helpful way to go about it, and I think that the hopes of you know certainly some Democrats in the U.S. is that what's being exposed about Trump and corruption now and the legal proceedings against him will help to disenchant at least some, if not all, of his his base. But isn't it worrying that the only way out of a conspiracy theory is to say it's more of a conspiracy than you think? It's a deeper conspiracy than you think. Yeah, well, I, I did have a line which actually didn't make it to the final version of the book, but it was something along the lines of beware of books about brainwashing, including this book, you know, that claim to, to as it were, to, to, to be simply de-brainwashing you because books that are about brainwashing, including conspiracy literature books, of course, claim exactly as you say, to be disenchanting or, or giving people a vision of reality that they've hitherto not had to say it's really you know, if you only look deeply enough, it's the deep state or a global conspiracy. It's all of a piece. There's some uh, meta narrative that explains everything. And that, and if you only will, as it were, follow that, if you follow QAnon, you will be disabused of your former illusions. So it's a claim to be freeing people from brainwashing, even as it manipulates and coerces and misinforms, distorts, you know, um, in, in these grotesque ways. So so indeed, that, that there's that problem that that that, that, we, that we're we're looking for, in a way, help to free ourselves. And the very people who may be claiming to free you may actually be inviting you into some terrible Mephistophelian sort of pact with you know that that, that you somehow sign up to some really crazy or evil thinking in the process of supposedly being freed in your thinking. Now, I, I meant to ask you this question about. 20 minutes ago, but you say, keep saying such interesting things that I keep getting diverted. So I'm going to say it and ask it now. And the, the, you know, the, it's a pretty obvious point. But when you think about systems of belief, cults, like that guy I mentioned at the beginning of this, who, who did get away from the cult and did start to think for himself with huge difficulties and personal problems, but he did. And it's a limit to brainwashing, isn't it, that there always seems to be someone who is not going along with it. Yeah, well, there are conditions where there's nobody, where you're isolated completely. And in a way, that's often the most terrifying situation, isn't it? I mean, um, but but often one hopes, whether it's in a, a, a community, a society, a family, that there's some way out, if, if in, a, in a very coercive environment, someone who offers a counter perspective that we depend upon psychically and socially, that there are options available of other ways to think or to experience things figure of course it can be in a family it can be in a, a religious movement it can be in a secular movement but that people are in thrall to someone and as you say that, that that the question then becomes what is someone's internal psychic resources to resist these forms of pressure and coercion and what and what are these uh, what are the external resources of, of other people or factors that may enable someone to think twice before going along with or, or simply falling in line with some terrifying orthodoxy. But if I understood you correctly at the beginning of that answer, you were saying there are conditions in which no one can think for themselves. Is that right? 
I, I think, I mean, again, I, I don't want to sort of, again, let the risk in an interview like this, Owen, is that I start sounding like some, you know, subject supposed to know all of it or a guru who's sort of saying, and, and, and so one doesn't know. I think in a way what the, the book and what I would be doing is sort of inviting curiosity about it rather than here's the new template for how this is but I but I do think from I think and I think that the, the, the there are great resources for people to use whether they're case studies whether they're autobiographies of people who've been held in captivity for example Brian Keenan who was held in um, Lebanon as you you may n- know you know the an Irishman who was caught up in the horror in, in that period and was held captive uh, also for some years with John McCarthy, and he, he wrote a remarkable book called An Evil Cradling about that experience of captivity. He was sometimes with other men in captivity, sometimes alone. And he describes, I think, very eloquently and movingly what it was like to feel your mind under pressure, sometimes feeling it was collapsing or, there's, you know, all the different sort of range of emotional states he went through. And he tries, you know, having, you know, later, once he's released and he's had time to think about it and to write, but to sort of try to to, to convey something of, of what that's like. But I think for every individual person that there'll be shared elements of the horror of it, but also differences in how it, it is. Some people with more resources than others to, to cope. In his case, it's a, a remarkable story in a way, you know, despite all the damage he suffered of psychic survival. So I think, uh, I think there is evidence about, you know, from memoirs, testimonies, social science, um, journalism and so on about what you can do, the devastation you can cause to someone and to what torture is. I mean, there's physical torture, there's mental torture. And I think in the post-war period with the literature on brainwashing and even movies about brainwashing, what they're saying is, you know, of course, physical torture can be part of what destroys people, but there are other forms of terror as well, of just leaving people in isolation, taking light away, sleep deprivation. There are things that don't necessarily leave marks on the body in the way that physical torture does, but that devastate people just being alone for extended periods. And and, and that's partly, I think, what I found so moving and eloquent and thought-provoking was reading that post-war literature about captivity, whether it was POWs, prisoners of conscience, others who went through these different regimes, where then they were, quote, re-educated, having been, in a way, broken down first. Right. But I think I'm right in saying that despite all the reading you've done, and, you know, thinking about this topic, that, you know, you didn't come away from it thinking, right, you know, if, 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 if a group of 100 people were put in these conditions, all 100 would be thinking the same way by the end of it. I mean, your conclusion is almost exactly the opposite, that individuals are different, they all react differently, they've got different stories, different reasons, different yeah. resources, and you can't really make the generalisations. I think it's still useful to think of techniques of brainwashing without assuming in some sort of Hollywood melodrama style that people become some robotic army of assassin killers all the same, operating mm. like machines. I think people can be made to do hideous things under the influence of others, I certainly think that. But I think that the what we need to do is is have, in a way, a scepticism about the assumption, you know, some of the assumptions that just treat people as though they're entirely passive sheep and all the same. We're not all the same. We're all, we each have our, you know, we bring to, even to the terrible traumas that people suffer, 
our own histories, our own emotions, our own complex feelings, our unconscious minds, and so on. So it's in no way to minimize the impact and the trauma and the devastation, or even the the, the power of you know so-called brainwashers to say we need to also treat people as individuals in in kind of responding to that. So I, as I say, I'm sort of in a way navigating between a, a more dismissive view, which would see this just as some sort of overblown melodrama of Hollywood and the Manchurian candidate and the Ipcris file and all that. I want to take it seriously whilst also drilling down and thinking about people's subjectivities as part of that. And in the book, I, you know, I do also, um, again, explore some of the writers, including this rather remarkable Polish poet, Miosz, who uh, won the Nobel Prize in 1980 as a, a great poet, but who wrote a remarkable book in 1953 called The Captive Mind. After This was written after he defected to the West from Poland. And it was really about what life was like in a communist society. And he, he wants to give, again, a different picture to the 1984 Winston Smith Orwellian one about the kind of problem and the different ways, the different strategies people had to survive in this coercive, you know, society in which you were not left free to make your own decisions or to have your own views. But it was very, com- I mean, it was the complexity of it, of it is what he wanted to get at. Some people go one way, some another. People tell themselves stories to rationalize why they're fitting in. Some people become martyrs and are willing to die. Other people are persuaded. Other people make more cynical bargains with power, you know, and and try to keep their private mind separate from their public performances. So he was very interested in subterfuge, in performance, in the sort of theatre of politics and how we fit in, what's perhaps nursing privately sort of other beliefs that we don't share. So I thought that was an important Book. I mean, in a way, I, what I want to do in the book is to rethink, I mean, for the 21st century, this classic literature in all its variety from the Cold War that talks about brainwashing, groupthink, hidden persuasion, re-education, and so on. One last thought. One of your reviewers wrote quite an interesting thing. be interested to know what you think about it. What Pick refuses to consider is the possibility that mind control doesn't really exist. What does exist is the perpetual desire to believe in it. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, I think that's a bit arch uh, on, on his part. I think this is David Aronovich. And I mean, of course, there would be an, a, a very different and interesting book to write about the, in a way, dramatizations and representations of brainwashing. And in part, my book is doing that. It's looking at the way this theme becomes a kind of moral panic of the 1950s and afterwards in these sort of more florid, melodramatic ways. But I think to say that that it it doesn't consider the possibility that this is all a mirage is to belittle the suffering of the countless people who have been subjected to these horrific techniques and whose minds have been damaged in often, you know, lifelong ways by coercive influences. So I think it's a bit glib to just think, oh, you know, we, we just sort of, as it were, conjure it away as just kind of part of the cultural history of the period, and as though there's no substance in a way to the, as it were, to the the real uh, psychological impact of coercive persuasion. And just as we close this, and uh, as I often do, just to look ahead at the end to, you know, to honour the title of the series and the future of this, do you think that the techniques are becoming more sophisticated, that brainwashing is, or thought control or social influence is more and more possible, or is it much the same? 
I mean, I think that, I think that, uh, uh, that there are new ways. I mean, I think we live in a very different society with the digital economy, the attention economy, surveillance capitalism, the things that many other people have written about very powerfully in the last decade that, that, that present new challenges. I mean, what's, we live in, in a world, you know, with the, the rise of China, what's happening in, in uh, Putin's Russia and Ukraine that, that present, of course, very new conditions. So both in terms of the internet world and the world of politics and the threats to even, you know, the freedoms we do have in liberal democracies, limited though they may be in some ways, but the, these important freedoms, these are, are, of course, all contested now and in question. And we look, we need to think about new challenges whilst also sort of recognizing these debates are not new they're, they're different in the new millennium we have different problems to face but we also in a way come back to these more fundamental questions about the the question of the human mind and the way in which that can be shaped and how it develops and what comes from within the psyche that the you know because psyches are complicated they're not just sponges and they're not just uh, uh, agents of others they're we're all complex, um, but there are also these intersubjective, interpersonal forces that can be more or less terrifying around us. And I think that debate about this is, you know, you can you can trace it back um, through different stages of history. As I say, brainwashing comes of age after the Second World War, but there are earlier debates about group suggestion and group psychology and uh, animal magnetism and hypnotism. I mean, hypnotism from the Victorian period that also pose this question of how easily we can drift into states where we're acting, uh, that things become more dreamlike or fantastical or we're not quite aware of what we're doing. We, uh, you know, hypnosis that can be, that was sold in the 19th century as a mode of therapy, but also as a terrifying way of taking over someone's will. So I think there are new ways, there's new languages, new conditions uh, that, that, that make this different to the 1950s, let alone the 1850s. But I think that this is also part of a kind of almost age-old question about what is it to have a mind and what is it to be able to think reasonably, freely, logically, coherently, thoughtfully for oneself. Great topic. Very well explained. Daniel Pick, thank you very much. Thanks very much, Owen, for the opportunity.